Well, if you, you all know Henry, you recognize Henry there. I um, got off to a rough start in trying to get prepared for this message because you know, we put together these slides and um, I have to send it to somebody to put it in pro presenter and get it ready to present today. And so I texted Henry. I said, hey, are you there? I need to send this to you. He said, no, I'm in Nepal. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> you try to get something done and somebody's in Nepal. Um, but I think, he's, I think he's coming back this week. I don't know. And then our pastor's been gone. And uh, so today, if you're new with us, if, if you're new at City Life Church, you're getting the second string. If you came to see James Harden, you're getting Tim Quarterman. Some people say, who's Tim Quarterman? Exactly. He played in three games last year. So I get about three games a year. Coach puts me in. Um, but I feel good today. I feel really good. And I think the reason I feel good is I worked out this morning. Anybody else work out? Nobody? Okay, the first service we had, I don't know, five or six people worked out. Of course, they're up early, you know. Get here early because they've worked out. They've got some energy. But this morning I'm on the treadmill. And if, if you've been to our place downtown, you know we're on the eighth floor of a mid-rise in down, downtown Houston. And so my treadmill is right in front of the window. So I'm running, and every time I'm running, I'm overlooking uh, Market Square Park, which if you've ever been to Central Park in New York, it's just like that, only it's just a little smaller. Um, but the people take their dogs down there. And I say they walk their dogs, but it's more like, you know, it's like the dogs are walking them. But I remember the first time I was uh, up on the treadmill and I saw somebody walk into the park with their dog in one hand, with the leash in one hand, and they had this plastic glove on the other. Now, some of you don't have any idea what that is, and I didn't at first. I didn't know if it was like a Michael Jackson impersonator or, you know, what it was. But sure enough, I'm watching to see what's going to happen here, and the dog does his business, and then they reach down and pick it up, and then they pull it out, and they wrap it up, and that's why they have the glove on. And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, you know, people say that the dog is man's best friend. I think it's the other way around. Now, if you do that for a dog... I mean, if a dog would come and clean your bathroom, then I'd say the dog is your man's best friend, you know. But um, this is part of the reason I think I'm probably a cat person. And those of you who know me and Cindy, you know we, we have cats. And uh, I had a cat. His name was Godfrey de Bullion Fiddler. He's a little pretentious, I know. But he was a purebred Himalayan, a great cat. God rest his soul. He's not with us anymore. But when he was with us, um, every morning I would be laying in bed and I would sleep on my side and he would jump up in bed and he'd tap me on the shoulder. He wanted me to get up and feed him, but he was very polite. He'd just tap me on the shoulder. And so then I'd roll over and I'd put my arm out and he'd crawl up under my arm and he'd just sleep for like another 30 minutes and then he'd wake up and he'd stretch and he'd tap me on the shoulder again because he wanted to be fed. That's polite, you know. If you have a dog... You know what happens with the dog? The dog jumps up in bed and, you know, licking your face and jumping all over you. And you're thinking, oh, my dog loves me, man's best friend. And then the next thing you know, you're following him out into the park with a glove on your hands, you know. <laughs> so this is why I'm a cat person. But I don't have anything against dogs. Some of my best friends have dogs. Um, so hopefully I haven't alienated half the congregation because I think what I've heard at least that when you preach you're supposed to connect with people I think I may have done just the opposite um, but today we are talking about 1 Corinthians 13 maybe the most famous chapter in the whole Bible the love chapter so they say um, 
And I'm going to throw everybody off because the slides I put together and I tried to send to the person who was in Nepal uh, didn't include this verse. But I actually want to start in chapter 12, verse 31. Because this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. And he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a more excellent way. So what Paul is getting ready to do here is he's going to explain to the Corinthians a more excellent way to do things, a more excellent way, a more excellent way to live. And we read this today, and we go on and read chapter 13, and we think, yeah, God is love, I've heard that, you know, and um, we think about it in the context of a Christianized, some might say a post-Christian culture, but a Christianized culture. God is love, we've heard that. But to the Corinthians, this was revolutionary. The Corinthians were new believers. They were formerly pagans. And in the pagan religion, there was no concept about these pagan gods loving people. They never would have thought of that. That wasn't part of what they believed. There was also no concept about these gods loving people and then people having an obligation to treat others around them in a certain way, a code of morality. So this is something entirely new to them. And so Paul is explaining to them, here's how God loves you. This is what it means when God loves you. And then it's your obligation to manifest this love to others. And this is why love is important. And this is how you go about carrying it out. So pick up in verse one, he says, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In chapter 12, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about this thing called the gift of tongues, which may seem a little spooky to you if you've never been around a charismatic church or never heard about this stuff, but this is Bible stuff. And what Paul says about tongues is he says it's a supernatural gift. He says, um, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. He says, because when you speak in tongues, when your, uh, your mind is silent, but your spirit prays, and you and it prays mysteries that God can understand. He says, I wish that you all prayed in tongues as much as I do. Because when somebody prays in tongues or speaks in tongues, it edifies themselves or builds them up. It's like recharging your batteries. He's talking about this supernatural gift. And if, um, if you want to know more about this, it's a very interesting uh, video that you can, get on, you can see on YouTube. Uh, CNN did an investigation of people praying in tongues. And I may get some of this wrong, but I think it was, they, they studied a, I think it was a Buddhist monk, I think it was a Catholic priest, and then somebody who was praying in tongues. And so they hooked them up to this, um, some of the doctors will know what it is, but it's the, it's the machine that monitors brainwaves, somebody here knows. Um, but they had them pray, they had the, the Catholic monk uh, do Gregorian chants, the Buddhist monk was meditating, and then... Uh, they had this other person praying in tongues. And what they found is that even when the Buddhist monk was meditating, uh, he, you could still see brainwaves going on. Same thing with the Catholic priest doing the Gregorian chants. But when they looked at the brainwaves of the person who was praying in tongues, it was just flat. It was like there was no brain activity, which totally flipped them out because it's exactly what Paul says. He says when you pray in tongues, your mind is, is quiet or silent, but your spirit prays. Okay, now again, you can find this on the internet. This is on CNN, not CBN, uh, CNN. 
And uh, it's a really interesting study. But the point of all this, the reason I'm digressing into this, is because this is a supernatural thing. And yet Paul says, even if I speak in tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, then I've just become like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just annoying. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If you all have ever had experienced a prophecy, I remember one of the first times I ever received a prophecy. You know, prophecy is when somebody speaks to you and they say, I feel like the Lord is saying this to you. And, um, you know, the Bible says in the New Testament we prophesy in part. In the Old Testament, the test was, you know, if everything they said didn't come true, then they weren't a true prophet. In the New Testament, Paul, in fact, says here in just a minute, we prophesy in part. But I remember one of the first times I got a prophecy, he was a pastor. I didn't even know. He was visiting in, in town from some other place, and he, pray, he was praying over me, and he said, the Lord says, last night you prayed, blah, 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 and he's going to do this and do that. Now, I had not told anybody what I prayed. It was only the Lord had heard what I prayed, and this guy nailed it. I mean, he read my mail. And you might imagine it got my attention. Okay, so this is, again, it's something that's supernatural. It's a supernatural gifting that comes with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's used for ministry, uh, for a lot of good purposes. And yet he says, even if I have that gift, but I don't have love, then I'm nothing. And then he says, even if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. We just, uh, my wife and I got back from a trip to Scotland and England about three weeks ago. And when we were there, we went to Oxford and we saw the place in Broad Street where three martyrs were, gave their lives to Jesus, gave their bodies, essentially were burned because they refused to recant the gospel right there in Broad Street in the middle of Oxford. And then we went up to St. Andrews and we saw the place outside of St. Andrews Castle and then over by uh, the chapel where George Wizard and Patrick Hamilton gave their lives, bodies to be burned for the gospel because they refused to, to recant. And Paul is saying here that even if you do that, surrender your body to be burned, but you haven't lived a life of love, if, it's not, if, if you're not exhibiting the love of God in your life, then it profits you nothing. That's serious stuff. He's really building this up. And then verse 8 he says, and we're going to skip over the, the verses in the middle. We're going to come back to them in, the middle, in a minute. But he says, in verse 8 he says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So he's saying even though there are these supernatural gifts, there's prophecy, there's words of knowledge, words of wisdom, there's healings, all these things, that these are just for a time because when the perfect comes, and the perfect is Jesus, when Jesus returns, we're not going to have a need for these, right? When we see Jesus face to face, we're not going to have a need for prophecy anymore because he's going to be right there with us. But he's saying even then when these other things pass away, then there's still going to be a need for love. Love is going to survive prophecy and all of these other gifts, and then he says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child and reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but, the, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also fully been known. So what he's doing and what's implied here is he's saying, if all you have are the gifts, you have a powerful gift of prophecy and you've prayed for people and they've been healed, and you've had these spiritual gifts, but you don't have love, that's kind of like the difference between being a child and being a fully mature adult. That's how important love is. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I read this chapter for years and years, and I would read it, and I would think, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's going to be really difficult for me because, for one, I'm not a particularly emotional person. Some of you know this. Um, one of my favorite people or persons is, um, is Spock of Star Trek. <laughs> I like the way he's guided by reason. He makes a lot of good decisions. Uh, I like that. Uh, one of my favorite writers is Seneca, who was a first century Stoic writer, great writer. I love, I love Seneca. I love Spock. And so when I read this, I think, well, I don't know if I can, like, muster up this, this, this love that Paul is talking about and saying is so important. And yet it's supposed to be the most important thing that I'm supposed to do. Maybe you felt the same way. Maybe you read this and maybe you don't think in terms of emotions because maybe, maybe you, you deal more in that and it's easier for you. But maybe you, you read this and you think about a particular person and you think, I don't know if I could love that person like this is talking about here. Or maybe you think about what Jesus said when he said, love your enemies as yourself. And you're thinking, well, that's for really super Christians. You know, that's once I've lived to be like 80 years old and I'm right before, it's right before I die and I've been fully sanctified and lived my life following Jesus and he's refined me, then I will be able to really love like this chapter talks about. And it's this like unattainable thing. I get that because I've had the same problem when I read this passage of Scripture. And if I, as I've read it this week, um, I've just been incredibly convicted by it. But as I'm reading it, um, I realize something that I'd never really thought much about. And we're going to see it in verses 4 through 7. And it's the good news about what I have to say to you today. And if you have one thing that you take away from this entire message, if you're out eating later and somebody says, what is this message about? You can sum it up in one sentence. And that is, love is not about how you feel. It's about how you make the other person feel. Or if you want to say it another way, love is a verb. Love is a verb. Now let me show you. Let's look at verse 4. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. And it's not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. What is missing from these four verses where Paul is trying to describe for pagans who don't understand fully what this is, what this idea of agape love is, and about a God who loves them, and they're supposed to manifest that love, What's missing from this is anything about how you're supposed to feel. It's all conduct, with one exception. He says not to be jealous. And the reason he says not to be jealous, we'll talk about in just a minute, but it inhibits your ability to act. So love is a verb. It's conduct. 
And when you realize that, it's liberating because you realize, okay, I don't have to muster a feeling. I just need to do something. Jesus was teaching and a lawyer asked him a question. He said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, how, how do the scriptures read to you? And the lawyer said, well, um, I'm supposed to love God with my mind, soul, and all my strength and love my neighbor as myself. Jesus said, you've answered well. And then the lawyer asked a question, a question that he's been maligned for for the last 2,000 years, but I think it's actually a really good question. He says, who is my neighbor? And that's a great question. And it's a question as lawyers that we're taught to ask because if, if you say, here's what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, I want to know who my neighbor is. Is that every person in the world? Is it just the people who live within a mile of my home? I mean, that's kind of like the traditional definition of neighbor. Now, the Bible says that he asked this question because he was trying to justify himself. And I think we look at that and we go, ah, yeah, buddy, you lawyer, you, you know, whatever. But I think he was asking the same questions that we ask. Because when you, we're going through 1 Corinthians 13 here, just a minute ago, when we're talking about some of the questions you ask, it's like, okay, can I really love that person, though? That's really what he's doing. That's why he's asking, who is my neighbor? And to answer the question, Jesus tells a story. And he tells a story about a guy who's going down from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And if you've ever been to Israel, which is where our pastor is right now, you know that to go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you go down. Because Jericho is down by the Red Sea. It's like one of the lowest places on the earth. And so he's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it says some robbers, he, uh, some robbers fall on him and they, they rob him and they beat him up and they leave him half dead and they run off. Then Jesus says that a priest is walking down the street. He sees the guy laying there half dead and he just keeps right on walking. Next... A Levite is walking down the street, sees the guy laying there half dead, and he doesn't do anything either. He just keeps walking. And then a Samaritan comes, and the Samaritan's walking by. He sees this man, and he says, it says, Jesus says he felt compassion. We don't know that the others didn't feel compassion, but he felt compassion. He doesn't say he felt love. He says he felt compassion. And so what he does is he goes and bandages him. He takes care of him. He pours oil and wine on his wounds. He puts him on his donkey, he takes him to the inn, he pays for his room and board, and he tells the innkeeper, take care of this man, do whatever you need to do, and when I come back, if there's anything else that's owed, I'll take care of it. And then Jesus asks a question. He says, who proved to be his neighbor? In other words, who loved him? And the lawyer answers, he says, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, go and... Do likewise. Do likewise. He didn't say go and feel likewise. He said go and do likewise. Now, I don't know. I suspect that the Levite and the priest both felt compassion. I mean, I don't think, I mean, even as unemotional as I can be, when I see uh, homeless people or, or whatever people in a bad way, I feel compassionate, right? I think they felt compassion, but they didn't act on it. So it doesn't matter. Do you think the person who was left on the side of the road thought that either one of them loved him? He's not a mind reader. All he can do is look at how they treated him. 
Only one person loved him. Okay? So love is not about how you feel. It's about how you make the other person feel. It's a conduct. Love is a verb. So let's dig into this. Let's dig into these verses. If we can go back one slide, go back to uh, verse 4. That's where we're going to start. So I want to unpackage some of this, some of these to-dos. When, when Paul says that love is like this and like that, what he's really saying is these are the things that we should be able to see in your life. These are things you should be able to see in my life. Um, and if you see these things in my life, then maybe you're seeing part of the unconditional agape love of God. So he says, first of all, love is patient. You think, well, what does that have to do with love? Well, if you think about it, if I am impatient with you, what it suggests to you is that my time is more important than yours, which is another way of saying that you don't really matter as much as I do. And it ministers rejection to people when you're impatient with people. Love is kind. Now, love is not the same thing as kindness, but kindness is a characteristic of love. And I remember when I, uh, I first became a Christian at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes meeting when I was 12 years old, but I didn't grow as a Christian because I didn't have anybody to disciple me. So nobody took me through the Purple Book. I don't think the Purple Book even existed back then. Um, but when I got to college, I met a guy. He was a couple years older than me. He was just, I think he was a, when I first met him, I think he was a junior maybe. Um, and he started talking to me about the Lord. And I'd known him maybe two weeks. And I run into him. He says, hey, I've got something for you. And he gives it to me. It's a, it's a present that he bought me. And I open it up, and it's a Bible. And it's not just any Bible. It's the open Bible. I don't even know if they make these anymore. But... Back then, it was like maybe a $35 Bible, which today is like, well, like $100. It's a long time ago. But if you can imagine being a college student and somebody you've known for just a couple of weeks spending $100 on you. Now, for him, it was an act. For me, it was I, probably the first time I can remember anybody outside my immediate family doing something like that for me that made me feel loved and appreciated, like this is something deeper. For him, it was an act of kindness. But what he did was he exhibited the love of God for me through a simple act of kindness. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. This is the only, I think arguably, the only emotion here that's even, that Paul even gets close to when he's telling us about what love is, and it's the negative. He's not saying that love is. He's saying love is not. Because if you're jealous about somebody or people around you, you will not be able to love them properly. When you're jealous of them, it becomes something that inhibits your ability um, to love because, for example, when they have success, you can't rejoice with them because you're reserved because you're thinking, why is that happening to him instead of me? And it becomes an inhibition in your ability to love. So he says, love is not jealous. Rejoices with other people when they have success because that's what God does with us. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Because when you brag and you're arrogant around other people, well, how does it make them feel? It makes them feel smaller, right? That's why we do it. That's right. I'm as guilty as anybody, you know. I want to tell you about what happened so you know, see what a great guy I am or whatever. And in doing that, 
it inevitably kind of pushes you down a little bit. But that's not what the Lord is, what the Lord does. The love of the Lord elevates and accepts and draws you. The Bible says that the kindness of God draws us to repentance. Verse 5 says, love does not act unbecomingly. In other words, it's not uncourteous or inattentive to propriety. Another way of saying it is it's love is not rude. Now, I remember when I was, uh, I was a law clerk. I wasn't licensed yet, and uh, I was in a church, and one of the elders in the church was a very accomplished man and very successful, had a lot of charisma, a lot of natural giftings, and somebody I looked up to, somebody a lot of people looked up to in the church. And I had this case that I stumbled upon through some connections, and I wasn't even a licensed lawyer, so I shouldn't, couldn't handle it, but I thought it could be a pretty big case. So I referred it to him, and then I didn't hear back from him, and so I kept calling, and he just never returned my call. And finally, when he did, I said, hey, I, you know, I've been calling you. Why, why didn't you call me sooner, you know? He said, well, frankly, Scott, he said, you're way down on my list. <laughs> you know, you all laugh. It would hurt, you know. I laugh at it now. I look back on it. Uh, he was being just being really honest, I think, because I was down on his list. <laughs> I mean, uh, he had he was trying to manage a law firm and all of that. But the point was, he was rude. And this was not unknown about this particular person. And so people didn't want to get close to him because they were afraid of what he might say and hurt their feelings. And that's not the way the love of God works. The love of God draws people. It doesn't push them off, right? Now, uh, just to tell you the rest of the story, years later, 20 years later, I ran into him at a bar convention, the state bar convention. And I think we was in San Antonio at that time. And he said, let's have lunch, you know. Why we? So we sat down to have lunch. And he uh, repented and apologized. And he said, look, I didn't realize... Uh, I don't remember the word he said, but he said, I didn't realize how pugnacious I'd been and how I was and how many people I turned off. He said, but the Lord's shown me now. I see it now, and I just want to apologize to you if I ever said anything to you. But the point here is, what Paul is saying is that it does not act unbecomingly. If you're being rude to somebody, you're not exhibiting the love of God. It has the exact opposite effect. Love does not seek its own which is another way of saying the love is not selfish. Because when we're selfish around other people, they sense it, and it makes them feel that their needs are not as important as ours. Right? Isn't that really what selfishness is? It's, uh, I'm going to get in line before you so I can get the last one of those that they have because my need is more important than yours. So Paul is just, he's, I say he's beating around the bush, but he's... He, He's trying to wrap his arms around this concept that is new to them and, and since new to us as well. Uh, and so he's giving bits and pieces. Here's what love is like. Here's what it's not like. It's not selfish. It's unconditional is another way that we look at it. Uh, what we say in, in uh, the legal practices, there's no quid pro quo. There's no this for that. It's not, I'll do this for you if you did it, do this for me. Or... Maybe it's even unspoken, like, I'm going to be nice to you because I think there's something you can do for me. No, it doesn't work like that. It's unconditional, which is exactly what the Lord did at the cross through Jesus. It's unconditional love. 
Love is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. And for those of you who are married, if you're going to take anything away from today, this is probably the most important thing. Um, It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Because if you're married long enough, you're going to get wronged. And then how you respond to it is going to directly affect your marriage going forward. Um, I tell people this, and Cindy always tells me not to say it, but she's out of town. So (laughs) she probably won't listen to this either. Uh, (laughs) But we don't fight a lot. At least she says we do, and I, but maybe we do and I don't notice. I don't know. Uh, but I remember one time, and this is the one time that really sticks in my mind, and I don't remember what it was, but I remember walking out the back door. This is when we lived out near Jersey Village. And I walked out the back door of the house, and Cindy was like going toward the garage or something. And I remember yelling at her, and I don't remember what it was, but I was mad at her because something she had done or said or I perceived that she'd done or said. And it really raised my voice. It was, and, and I'm expecting... Not because she'd done it before, but just because this is the way it normally works is, you know, I'm yelling at you and I expect, yeah, but let me tell you this. And instead, she just, she just stood there, didn't say anything, looked like she wasn't even irritated, and she just waited. And as she waited, the Lord convicted me. <laughs> I felt horrible, and I repented right then. And in doing that, She loved me because what she was saying is my offense is not as important as you. She she had to be offended, but she chose not to respond. And in doing so, she loved me. She demonstrated God's unconditional love to me. Verse 6, love rejoices in the truth. Now this one... um, This one's really important. I think it's really important for us as a church too. Because even though love is kind, love, the agape love of God, rejoices in the truth. In other words, there may be something um, that, that you need to say to somebody else that might strain your relationship with them. But because you care more about them as a person than you do about your relationship with them, you need to speak the truth to them. This is why we share the gospel with people. And if you never, if you don't grasp this concept of the love of God, then you'll never share the gospel with anybody if you're a Christian. Because you'll value that relationship more. Or you think, well, I'm afraid I'm going to get rejected. But more so I think it's, it's, well, I don't want to damage this relationship. But their well-being, whether they know Jesus is more important than your relationship with them. And love rejoices in the truth i tell another story about Cindy. This was before we were married, and uh, we weren't even dating. We were just really good friends, and I had had some run-in or disagreement with this person, this guy I was going to move in with, and, and I somehow I felt like I'd been wronged, and so I needed somebody to talk to, so I called Cindy, and I'm telling her, and I'm saying, uh, I tell her the whole story, and I go on and on, and, and, and then I say, so what do you think? There's a silence. Then she says, well, Scott, she says, I just think you're kind of self-absorbed. <laughs> it's, it's what she told me. And she was right. <laughs> I was totally self-absorbed. But you know what I thought? I thought somebody who would say something like that to me at the risk of our relationship must really care about me as a person. 
You know what? She married me anyway. He rejoices in the truth. People who love you will speak truth to you. Other people will just sympathize sometimes. And that's a humanistic form of love. It's just, you know, feel sorry for you, sorry, but you don't give the remedy because you're afraid, you know, it might damage the relationship. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Um, this, along with the other one we just talked about, I think if you're married, this is so important. What it really means is that you believe the best about the other person. There was a study that was done not too long ago. They studied couples who'd been married for a very long time. And what they thought they were going to find was that as people were married longer and were able to stay together longer, what they had done is they had progressively reduced their expectations with regard to their spouse. And that that's how they were able to stay together so long. I just don't expect as much of you. But what they found shocked them. What they found was the exact opposite. What they found was that even after there had been disappointment and offense and hurt, that in successful marriages, they continued to believe the best about one another. It's totally counterintuitive, but it's exactly what Paul is saying. And that's because when you continue to believe the best about the other person, it ministers God's acceptance and love to them. And it makes you want to keep coming back. It doesn't mean that you're naive. It just means in that gap, when something happens and it'd be easy to say, oh, here we go again or whatever, that you believe the best. And you know what? It shouldn't be that big a deal because we do this with ourselves all the time. You know, I mean, I do it. When I mess up or, you know, I'm late getting somewhere and I'm thinking, well, they should understand because I've just been really busy. You know, I believe the best about me. I had a good intent, right? And all Paul is saying here is, that that's what you need to do with other people. That's what it means to love other people like you love yourself is you believe the best about them just like you do about your own motives. And maybe sometimes you'll be wrong, but that's okay. Because in being wrong, you're still going to be ministering God's acceptance and His unconditional love. Now you may be thinking, okay, I get it. I appreciate that love, agape love, is not something that I've got to manufacture. And that's good. But how do I live this out? Because this isn't easy. To be kind, to be patient, to not be provoked, to not consider a wrong suffered, to not be jealous, all of these things. But the good news is it's not entirely upon us. The Apostle Paul in I guess the book of Philippians said that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who is at work in us. In other words, it's a partnership. We have responsibility. There are things that we have to do, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit wanting to work through us. And so in a sense, what we need to do is we need to listen to the Holy Spirit and then get out of the way. And by get out of the way, I mean just be obedient. And I think probably what's gonna happen to you is the same thing that's happening to me as I've gotten convicted is just the lack in my life as I'm reading through this. But I expect this week I'm going to be doing something and talking to somebody or dealing with an issue and the, the Holy Spirit's going to convict me and say, well, why don't you just do this or that for him or her? 
And then I'm going to have a choice to make. And when I make that choice, the choice I'm going to be making is, am I going to choose to love that person or just be selfish? Some of you know I like, um, I love medieval history, uh, particularly early church history as well, because the spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire is just amazing to me. That Christianity that started with 12 people in 30 AD, by 312 when Constantine has his vision, is converted to Christianity, many scholars believe that the Roman Empire was 50% Christian. Can you imagine that? In 300 years, it's amazing. And so they've studied, well, how could this happen? How is it that the early church grew so quickly? And the one thing that most people seem to be agreed upon who've studied this is that it was the sterling character of the Christians and the love that they showed for one another and for the world. And I found this letter. It's called the Epistle of Diogenetes. It was written in 130 AD. And this is somebody, I think he's writing to Roman authorities. And this is what he says. He's talking about Christians. He's trying to describe for them what these Christians are like. And he says, they obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are poor yet make many rich. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are in the world. That's pretty powerful stuff. Can you imagine what we could accomplish in the city of Houston, Texas, if we really began to live this out. Just like the first century Christians. And not only did we display the character of God and the power of God through the gifts and ministry and all of that, but also the love of God. People would be drawn here. They'd be drawn here because they'd be drawn to the Lord. Let's stand to our feet. I want to pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you you told us, Lord, you said that your burden is light. It's easy and light. It seems difficult, but really, Lord, as we submit to you, it's not as difficult as it looks, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you've made what you've called us to do, Lord, you've made possible through the power of your Holy Spirit. You're not asking us to do anything that's impossible. And Lord, so we pray with that in mind, Lord, and in faith, Lord, that we can, like Philippians 4.13 says, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Lord, that this week, Lord, you'll begin to help us to really apply what we've just read, Lord. That love the agape love 
that you've exhibited toward us, Lord, that we'll begin to exhibit to other people, not through just feeling, Lord, but through conduct. And Lord, that you'll begin to convict us and show us where we need to act, Lord, and that we'll act in obedience so that people will be drawn to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.